0: Welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumpener, And I'm Kristen Chase, and we're the co-founders of coolmompix.com Today, we're here,
1: but we're not here. While we take a little summer break, we wanted to share one of our favorite episodes with one of our favorite guests, since you know what, Liz? We talk about it all the time. We right? do.
0: We always reference this. So we were like, let's bring this one back, yeah. because we thought a lot of you haven't heard it yet. <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We've got the prolific author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World, Jordan Shapiro, to talk about the concept of raising digital natives and how to embrace it instead of fighting
0: it. He's got some ideas we think might even change the entire way you think about technology and kids in general. It certainly changed how we think about it. Speaking of which, make sure you're tuning in to OutTech Your Kids, our brand new tech positive podcast in 15 minutes or less each week. We'll give you some awesome tips or answers to your burning questions to help stay a little bit ahead of your kids, if not uh, in front of them. We'll be back with that terrific interview with Jordan Shapiro, plus our cool picks of the week right after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Kobe Natural Deodorant, as the parents of teens and tweens ourselves, we know what a big deal it is the first time you say to them, uh, I think it's time you start wearing deodorant. We also know that these days with lots of kids activities indoors, we're kind of aware of those funky smells <laughs> a little more than usual. Since adult deodorants can be harsh on kids sensitive skin, lots of parents are looking for a more natural solution and Kobe doesn't just offer that. It's a deodorant specifically formulated just for kids and teens, which I didn't even know existed. It's super safe, just and doesn't contain aluminum, parabens, or the artificial fragrances that a lot of parents want to avoid. Kobe deodorant is also hypoallergenic, which means no nut oils, sesame, soy, or dyes. That makes it a really smart choice for any kid's skin. As for the smell, because that's a big deal, it's sweet lime. That means it's not floral, it's not fruity, it doesn't smell like a candy store or a suntan competition, just a refreshing lime that's great for boys and girls. You can find more at kobe Kids.com. That's Kobe K O B I. KobeKids.com to pick up a bottle of their natural deodorant. In fact, check it out right now. The packaging is really cool. And if you hurry, you can even get free shipping for a limited time. Once again, that's KobeKids.com. K O B I Kids.com for a natural deodorant formulated especially for kids and teens. Let's talk
1: a bit about
0: our awesome guest. He is awesome. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Dr. Jordan Shapiro is an international speaker and consultant whose fresh perspective on digital technology, child development, and family life combines psychology, philosophy, and economics in an unexpected way. And his recent book, which I have been raving about for a while. You have.
0: You have. I know.
1: I can't stop. It's called The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. It's what we're currently (laughs) obsessed with and I found found it after reading an interview that he did on NPR with another former Spawned guest and author, Anya Kamenetz. And the book is described as a full counterpoint to the fearful hand-wringing that has come to define our narrative around children and technology.
0: Even more than that, he's currently a senior fellow for the Joan Ganz Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop and a non-resident fellow in the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institute. Wow. During the week, you'll find him teaching at Temple University. Yay, Kristen. You're Philly people. Philly. And hey, my parents were grads from Temple, so we got Temple in the family. And he chases around his two sons. And fun fact, before education, he worked with celebrity chef Bobby Flay. And fun fact number two, when he was 13, he won the $10,000 prize from America's Funniest People. How's that for, like, cool dad crap? Yes. I think that's awesome. So welcome, Jordan.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We
0: want to hear all about digital parenting. But first, you have to tell us about the video.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, you said 13. I was like 13. It seems so long ago. We did a video. We went to a shopping mall, We and I had to lug the keyboard, and we did a video. My best friend and I did it together, and we, we had written a song, and the song was called What Part of the Pig Does the Hot Dog Come From? And I... I <laughs> We didn't understand that there was a sexual innuendo there when we wrote it, actually. You know, we, we still thought it was funny that it was, like, gross animal parts. Uh, only later did we get the joke.
0: I'm just glad you weren't, like, getting hit in the nuts at 13, you know, or whatever I used to put on those videos. That's really cool. The,
2: the dog, Beethoven, was the guest host that week. So we got to we got to hang out with Beethoven. That From was pretty the movie? Cool. The yeah, big dog? Yeah, the actual dog. I have pictures of myself with the actual dog. Oh,
0: my gosh. That's awesome. That's totally dating us, and I love it. <laughs> I
1: know. Every Everyone who's our age is suddenly like, I remember that dog and people who aren't are like dog named Beethoven. Yeah, go ahead and Google that, people. (laughs) Look
0: it up on Netflix. Your kids will love it.
2: (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Might be dated. (laughs) Oh, poor
1: Beethoven. Okay, so I am so excited to finally talk to you. I have been tweeting about you and telling everyone about your book based on this interview that I read on NPR with that guest that we talked about, Anya Kamenetz. And I have to say that this article and the book, since I have read it finally, have been life-changing for me. And it was the first article that I have seen that really addressed this idea, the concept of raising digital natives and how to embrace it instead of fight it. Because I feel like everything I've read has been all about managing or monitoring. And so I'm wondering, is that one of the reasons why you started researching and writing A New Childhood?
2: Yeah, you said that very well. That's exactly the reason. You know, everybody talks about how technology is changing things. And, and I've never really bought into that. I more think like humans change and then we build tools in order to make us be able to do those ways of living and thinking that we prefer. And so I was watching all of these people tell me how to fight against this digital media and this digital technology. And I went, well, isn't that sort of fighting against the kinds of connections we want? Mm. Shouldn't we be teaching our kids how to do that in ways that make us feel good about what they're doing rather than pretending? there's a way to avoid it. You know, it, it's not going anywhere. Uh, it may, maybe it was a mistake to bring digital technology into our lives, but that fight's over already. It <laughs> is, yeah. So now we got to figure out how we're going to do it the right way. And that was what made me write the book, was to give parents a positive vision of what it could look like to have this integrated into our family lives and into our children's lives and into our lives as a whole. So it felt like something that wasn't always discouraging. That was one reason I wrote it. The other reason I wrote it is, is I sort of thought everybody was lying, right? We all get these like hairy eyes Eyeballs from the other parents at the playground if our kids are using screens. And, and I sort of think <laughs> kids are all using screens more than any parents are admitting, and parents are more okay with it than most of them are admitting. Mm. And I kind of wanted to give voice to what I feel like is this sort of unfairly silenced attitude. Um, and, and I found that very much in talking about, since the book came out, talking to lots of people. A lot of people go, yeah, that's how I've always felt. I've just been afraid to say it. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I love this. You know, look, I'm very pro-technology. And despite understanding a lot of the watchouts and how differently we have to raise our kids and what we have to learn ourselves to be good digital parents, I think there's so many positive things. And I know that the perspective in the new childhood, I mean, the way you write it, it's guiding humanity towards a bright future. And I love thinking about it that way. And you talked about how our children will be able to create new, better models of global citizenship, connection, community. Like when we think about it that way, as opposed to like screens are destroying our children, like it really helps you shift your mindset as to like how we can use this positively. So can you talk a little bit about that perspective? Because it really is kind of zigging when everyone else seems to be zagging in the other direction.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd like to say about that is a lot of people see the book or hear me speak and, you know, I can tell they imagine that I'm this super pro, all screens are good, you know, (laughs) techno-optimist. And I'm certainly not that. You know, I think I'm very much worried about all the same things the technophobes are worried about. I just don't think the solution to that is to turn away from it. I think the solution to that is to teach our kids how to live with it. Um, You know, I am worried about the social skills. I am worried about our kids spending enough time outdoors. I am worried about, do they know how to do things besides digital skills? But the way that we do that, I don't think is by creating this sort of zero-sum game or what I call the on-off switch Mentality, right? Is it Mm -hmm. when is screen time okay? When isn't it? Instead, if we really want to create the world that we can imagine living in with these technologies that connect us, that create access, that have the ability to create a much more equitable or democratic way of communicating, then we need to teach people how to do that. And I think what we've got instead right now is a bunch of people. Grown ups who haven't learned how to do it. And so we have a ton of cyberbullying and a Twitter cesspool. And, you know, we have all these like terrible behaviors Mm -hmm. happening that scare the crap out of people. And they should be scared of those behaviors. But it seems to me that the way you solve that is you sit with your kids and you go, how do I teach you not to use these that way? How do I teach you Mm how to use these tools in a better way? And, And I don't see how a kid can learn that if our attitude is, okay, you can have 90 minutes a day and I won't look at what you're doing and I'll. I'll go off in the kitchen while you spend those 90 minutes. And if you go one minute over, I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) scream.
1: Wait, are you in our house? Hold on. That sounds like so many parents. You know, you just kind of described the battle or whatever we want to call it, that so many parents are fighting right now. And so I think to me, that's why, and I think to Liz as well, this perspective is so refreshing and I imagine difficult for lots of parents to swallow. Um, You go right into video games. Like you don't waste any time. You talk about video (laughs) games right away. In your first chapter, it's called the new story time. So why does it feel like parents are so afraid of video games? And we've had experts on that tell us that video games are great, you know, moderation, blah, blah, blah. Like Anya Kamenetz. But why? Why are parents so afraid of video games?
2: Well, the best way to answer that might be by looking at the history. Um, You know, when video games first came out, the Magnavox Odyssey or the Atari 2600, uh, (laughs) I'm sure many of us remember The Magnavox wasn't very popular, but the Atari, of course, was huge. Uh, Actually, if you read the press from that time, video games are really positive. They're sort of imagined as this progressive, innovative, alternative, American technological inventing thing uh, everyone's so proud of their kids it's almost like football my
0: kid can play brick out for an hour without dropping a ball yeah. <laughs> and then the first person shooter games came along right yeah.
2: <laughs> competitions would happen at arcades and people were fighting yeah. high score you and people will remember this and then there was a game that came out and that game was called death race mm. and it was based on a movie uh, I've never seen the movie I've seen the game and you can find images of the game on YouTube if you want to search for it. Uh, and what Death Race was was you sort of drove a car over gremlins. It doesn't look like a car or a gremlin, uh, but that's what they describe it as, <laughs> you know, because it's early video games. It's like
0: it's- six pixelated squares, and that's your car. <laughs>
2: yeah, <exactly. laughs>
0: the green squares of the gremlins.
2: <laughs> you drive over it, and, and a tombstone, as soon as you, you know run one of these gremlins over, a tombstone comes up, which is just a cross. Uh, this terrified people. This was the first sort of moral panic about video games. Mm. You know, it, when you think about it, it was actually weird games that people will remember, like Gunfight and Outlaw were Atari games. They already existed. No one had any problem with them. I I think that's because parents understood, you know, cops and robbers, water pistols, cowboys and Indians, all the things kids played at that time. But they didn't get this idea of running over people. And I think it was just a real disruption (laughs) to the normal, like, moral fiber of things. And from that point on, video games became more associated with pinball and with arcades and bars and, and all these negative things rather than sports. It's in competition. Mm. We're still living with a lot of that. None of that's ever gone away, especially because it seems like every two years, you know, sixty minutes runs the exact same version of their death race moral panic story, which is you know, like, <laughs> they, they just ran it in, in December, uh, almost the exact same story. You know, where they talk to one person, they go, "Oh, it's bad for their brains. It's morally objectionable. We need some government intervention." You know, they run this every couple of years, and that's why I think parents are so scared of it. It, it is odd, though, right? Because you're not scared of. If I were to tell you your kid's going to spend hours doing electronic music on their computer, you'd be proud of that child. If the child were, like, designing architecture on AutoCAD, you'd be really proud. But as soon as it becomes a game, that's a problem.
0: I I think that's fascinating.
2: Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) yes.
0: I think also just the, the fact that it's on a screen gives it an automatic layer of terror for parents. I mean, we always say kind of nothing brings out the sanctimony <laughs> like this thing that goes around every few months and shows up in our Facebook feeds like, please sign this pledge not to give your kid a cell phone till they're 16. Pass it around so everyone can commit to it and then there'll be no peer pressure to get... I'm like, look, <laughs> people, I know you want to do the right thing, but like everyone's kids are different. Everyone has different situations. Like, I have New York City kids who need phones because they're on subways by themselves commuting, and I want to be able to get in touch with them. Let's
2: move beyond the safety question. I've always thought that's nuts, because why would you think right at the moment where they have the most hormones raging is the best time to hand them a phone for the first time?
1: (laughs) That's
0: such a great point. So start early, you're saying.
2: At at the point where they want to do everything I tell them. At the point where they want to listen. That is so brilliant I know
0: you're kind of being a little flip but that's that's brilliant teach kids so that by the time they are 13 and you know bigger risk takers and trying new things they actually have a framework for behavior and they have boundaries
2: that's what we do for everything else right we spend our time yes. with our kids and you know I always use the crossing the street metaphor you hold their hand every time until you feel comfortable that they can do it themselves and then even that you just you still walk behind them a few steps before you ever let them go alone right well we don't do that with screens. For some reason, we're going, let's give them a phone when they're 16. Let's give them a phone even when they're 13. No, well, let's work with them with a phone when they're little over and over again, hold their hand, expect they're going to do terrible things, right? But be there to intervene and correct, just like I have to do in every other thing in their lives so that I can trust them by the time they're 16 to not be doing all the bad things we hear about.
0: I think that's really smart. It's like you have to have the sex talk, the tech talk. They're like so many talks we have to have with our kids early on. And I just love your whole optimistic perspective that it's not going away and we have to learn how to work with it.
1: I have to say you're the reason why I finally allowed my daughter to try TikTok (laughs) um, because I felt so bad. I'm telling you after reading your book and reading that article like my mind was blown because I'm like finally I said what happens when your child Turns thirteen that they suddenly know how to use Instagram.
0: Like, what happens
1: that th- the day before they were twelve and three quarters or whatever they were seven eighths or whatever, <laughs> and they they didn't, and now suddenly they're thirteen and they do. And I'm like, mm, that I I know I don't have a doctorate, but I do have a master's degree, and my master's degree tells me that that, that, that doesn't make sense. I have a BA, and I agree with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I can I can say just as the parent of a 13-year-old that I kind of think he might have been better f- equipped for it at 7 and 8. That's when all he wanted to do was be kind.
1: Yes, Aww. that's so true. That's really it's so nice. true. And I love the point you make about how if we start our kids off early, we could see a decrease or like a total eradication of all trolling and bullying. I mean, that sounds super optimistic, but like our kids will know so much that they won't stand for it. Like they won't have any time for that kind of crap so I do like this idea of starting kids younger um, you talk a lot about family screen time yeah. And I want to know why this is so hard for us. Like, is it because we're all like too busy and tired so that it's not necessarily technology part, but we just need a break? Like, why is it so hard for us to sit down and play video games with our kids? Like, it can't be that we're all just like feel stupid because we don't know how to use an Xbox or PlayStation controller. Like, what is it about family screen time that intimidates?
2: I mean, what research does exist has sort of shown that almost all of a family's interactions when it comes to screens are restrictions, limits, or tech support, or negotiations about screen time. right There, mm. Almost none of it is what the experts say should happen, which is family-mediated experiences, right? where parents are asking questions about the media, whether that's television or cartoons or video games or screens. Uh, we know that there's very little of that happening. But as to why, I think all we can do at this point is guess. And what I've sort of found is I hear it all the time because I've said, hey, play a lot of video games with your kids. And I think part of it is people imagine doing that with older kids. And I'll be honest, I don't play many video games with my kids anymore who are now 11 and 13, uh, mostly because I'm not good enough at it, right? They don't want me to play with them anymore. Um, (laughs) Yes. But when they were little, I I played with them all the time, right? I would bring out the tablet and we would play together on that tablet. We would take turns or maybe we would get two tablets and sit next to each other and play with it. It all started with they had a new version of of Super Mario Brothers, the same version that existed when I was a kid. Oh, God, I'm
0: so bad at it. My kids just, they're always like, look. It's like to Kristen's point, like they destroy me, so I can't help it. I'm competitive and every so often I'm like, I just, you guys will kill me. You don't even like give me any head start. So the, then they'll play like, you know, okay, we'll play like the easier characters, mom. So you don't die in the first three. seconds. I know they always
1: make you try to feel so much better. And all it does is make
2: you feel worse.
0: I'm I'm like, like, Let's play Tetris kids. I'll show you who's who. Exactly. Show you who exactly. Can win
2: games. Yeah. But I think what's important to realize is that you don't actually have to be playing, right? You don't need this sort of image of like you know family game night I know that that's sort of an image we all have I don't think it happens very often for anyone even with board games you know we all get sort of excited about it but I don't know how much it really happens for families I think the more important part is that you're engaging in what's interesting to them right so I often say even if you hate video games whatever game your child is playing sit down and say hey explain to me what this game is how does it work what are you doing you don't have to actually try it but, but just asking a lot of questions about it taking an interest in it does a couple things. One, it shows your child that you care about what mm-hmm. they care about, right? So yeah, that's great for that's them. Great. Um, but more importantly, you can start to ask questions. You can start to ask even deep ethical and philosophical questions. I used to have tons of conversations with my kids about, but I don't understand why is using a gun to shoot that person fun? Why does that count as a game? That doesn't seem very game-like to me. And that kind of conversation, even though I you know, I didn't expect anything to change uh, about what they wanted to play, I wanted to sort of implant that critical voice in the back of their head um, Mm -hmm. so that they're asking those questions while they're playing. So they're not playing blindly. You know, I I sort of uh, think of it like I walk down the street all the time and things happen to me and and I have the voice of my mom or my dad where I go, what would they do? How would they respond to that? And I want to implant my ethical voice to be something my kids consider while they're in a digital space. And so to do that, I need to sit down with them while they're in a digital space and ask the kinds of questions and model that kind of mature reflection. You know, they're not going to be mature, they're kids, but I want them to have a a sort of bar they're trying to reach an ideal for what it looks like to be a mature digital citizen. Yes.
1: All right. We have a Facebook group for parents called Out Tech Your Kids. And one of the biggest questions we get is how to balance the screen time. Is screen time created equal? So we hear, you know, well, they're just sitting around playing video games. Is that the same as them like creating a YouTube video or like you said, writing electronic music or, you know, all of those different things that you can do that relate to technology? What are your thoughts on that? Is there a time limit? Do you think that it just kind of all goes together? That's something we get asked
2: a lot. Yeah, I think it really depends on the particular kid, first of all, right? D- different things for different children, uh, and they're going to be interested in different things. First, I'll deal with the time question, which is sort of the same as what you just said about the age question. When people say, what's the right time of screen time? I always want to say something absurd, like, you know, at 233 minutes and 52 seconds, we're <laughs> <really> a brain damage. <laughs> (laughs) at that moment, right? Um, Because it's obviously not true, right? There's no right or wrong time. And it really depends on the child. I was just talking to a parent the other day whose child's a really serious gymnast and does more hours of gymnastics training than I could ever imagine doing in my life every day. And the child comes home and wants to just chill out with a screen at the end because the child's exhausted and just needs that time. Well, what's wrong with that, right? So that seems like a really good use for that child who's clearly getting plenty of exercise right Who, who's also mm-hmm. getting good grades right so I think you first need to ask my strategy with my own kids has always sort of been I, I never put any limitations on it but I put lots of other requirements like they are required to read every night before bed. Uh, that's a habit I wanted to build the same way you build toothbrushing habits. Of course, they fought it for a long time, but now they just it's normal for them. Uh, I require them to spend some time outside. I require them to spend time with other people face-to-face. After that, as long as they've done all the things that I care about, then if they can fit in another eight hours of screen time, by all means, do it. They can't. There's not enough hours in the day to, to fit that much in. But as long as they're doing those positive things, I don't see what the worry is. As to The different kinds of things. I don't even think that's so much about the child as much as about the parent, right? Which things match your values? If I find my kids spending hours watching those dumb videos where they unwrap toys...
0: (laughs) we just wrote about that. I literally just wrote a post about like 15 kinds of videos to watch with your kids besides unwrapping toys. Other than those. Parents yes. forget there's other stuff out there. I find it
2: to be like the worst sort of representation of consumerism I can imagine and just like not even subtle advertising. Exactly. And if I find my kids doing that, I mean, I don't scream at them. I don't tell them they're not allowed, but I torment them. I mean, i sit there and go, and, and go, this is just an ad. Why are you watching this? And, I, and I, my strategy is all. Always sort of torment them until they want to change to something else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For my kids, it's those satisfying videos. (laughs) They're all like SEO with satisfying videos, and they can just watch like frosting being put on a cake for 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I'm like, all right, if that's soothing for you. yeah. You know, you were talking about how there's no exact time limit. And I think what's really interesting about you and the book in general is that this is not theoretical. You're really research and science based when you talk about this stuff. And I know we've seen things like the AAP recommends no more than two hours because after two hours, kids' brains go to mush. So it seems like you have a different perspective than that.
2: I don't know that I have a vastly different perspective than they do. Um, I've talked to a lot of the people who wrote those guidelines. I know many of them personally. And those guidelines, when they wrote them originally, they were really worried that kids weren't getting the things we know really matter, which are the eye contact with the parents, the, what they now call servant response interactions, right? Where a kid picks up a ball and you go, that's a ball. And they go, gaga. And you go, yeah, gaga, a ball. Or, you, know, you go back and forth this whole conversation, that mm-hmm. interaction. That's so important. We know how important that is to brain development. We know how important those interactions more than anything else are to almost all other outcomes throughout life. And what I think the AAP was really worried about is the kids were going to be handed a tablet and put in the corner and just sit there and watch it all day and not get any of those other things. And if that's happening, Hmm. you have a major problem. Like That should not happen. If you have a kid under two and you want to put on a video for 20 minutes so you can take a shower, that's not going to hurt your child. But if you're doing that all day every day, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think we have to be realistic. And I think everyone in the AAP would probably say the same thing. You know, if you're thinking of screen time as an actual activity that your kid spends time doing every day, that's probably not a good idea at under two years old. But to occasionally see a screen is not going to contaminate their brain permanently.
0: I've always thought that maybe some of those AAP recommendations are kind of lowest common denominator. Like, I I think people who are listening to this podcast, who are reading Cool Mom Tech, who are reading your book, are are really... Engaged parents and care about this stuff, and the fact that they have guidelines and have limits and are concerned about this probably makes them more engaged than a lot of parents. I just always wondered whether some of those guidelines would just to give you a cutoff point in case you needed it.
2: I mean, that's my sense. I wasn't involved in writing the guidelines, so I can't speak for sure. But that is absolutely my sense is those are ways of nudging parents into the best practices that will have the kids have the most positive developmental outcomes. But I think any good pediatrician would also say, you know, a parent needs to make those decisions for themselves and, and do it in an informed way.
0: That's kind of our entire take on cool mom talk. we always say, you know, your kids best. Yeah. And that, you know, if you're looking out for your kids and doing what you think is best for your individual kid, then that's, I think the most we can ask for, for anything in parenting. Right. If they start calling
1: your phone mom, then you're in trouble. <laughs> you
0: <know? laughs> I don't need you, mom. I've got big bird. <laughs> that's my test there. I think, you
2: know, what's always funny about those guidelines. I mean, I always hear people when they want to argue on the pro screen time side, they always go, it depends what you're doing on the screens. So if you're doing a video chat with grandma, that's positive screen time. And I always kind of want to play devil's advocate there and go, well, do you have research that shows that that's positive? Or you just you don't have any research that shows that that's positive? You don't have any research that the other stuff is negative. Depends what grandma's
1: saying, I guess, on
0: the phone. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right. Well, speaking of phones, I think this is a good last question to sum up this conversation that we're having. We can talk to you for a
0: very long time. I know. I know.
1: (laughs) But, you know, everyone's just going to have to go get the book and then we'll have to do a follow up podcast where we can talk more about this. So I know you have experienced this. We see this too with the site as well in that parents just have these adverse reactions to kids and phones, right? It's just like, ah, kids, phones, you know, hold off as long as you can. You know, oh, it's a scary thing. And you know, we, parents, I think, are a bit ambivalent about our own phone habits, which probably doesn't help. So I'm wondering, how do you address the naysayers? And I can imagine that folks, I'm gonna say my age, Gen Xers, 40 and up, who still have like one, Bigfoot left back in the olden days. Like, I remember the time our telephone would go from the kitchen to the living room, you know? Like, we
0: had to untangle the cord. Right, right. Like,
1: how do you get those folks to embrace? this approach or this model or whatever you're calling it? Because I'm all in, like clearly I have jumped in the deep end, but I'm sure there are a lot of parents who need to ease themselves into this mindset and get away from, you know, that whole managing and monitoring kind of situation. So what do you say to those folks? How do you get those naysayers, if you will, to... um Come to the dark side.
2: The dark side. <laughs> don't call it the dark side. Oh, no. Come to the light. Is that Better. For, for, for come rule number the light. one. I don't call it the dark side.
1: <laughs> Man. All right. Fine. We'll redo that. How do you? How do you get parents to come no, to the light? How's that? Okay. <laughs> come to the bright contrast. You're trying to do some terrible screen analogy <laughs> I know. to the, the non pixelated screen. Right. All right. Something. <laughs> to how do we get parents to? I don't know to, to understand how this can be seen as a positive and can really help our kids.
2: Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that technology is a neutral thing; it's just a tool, and our entire lives are mediated through different kinds of tools. Whether it's a chair, a chair is a tool, a fork is a tool, or you know, a table is a, is a tool. All of these things are sort of technologies that didn't exist once and existed before. And the real question is, what do you do with them? Do you live with them in healthy ways or in not healthy? ways not are they good or are they bad and so there's two different approaches so let me start with this one what I would say to most of them is if you want your kids to live a life where this is integrated in a healthy way then you have to figure out how to accept it and you have to figure out how to integrate it not to resist it that's not realistic but the way I often convince parents and I do this in the book in so much detail is going through the history and when I say history I don't just mean the history of technology you know there, there's parts of the book where I go back to the ancient history to show the different places where where resistance to tools existed as soon as new tools or new technologies showed up and that Mm -hmm. eventually people learned how to integrate that into civilization. And that is a normal human problem. That's not a problem unique to our generation. That's not a problem unique to digital technology. That's every single time. People resisted the printing press. People thought books were a terrible thing because they were going to make people isolated, right? Because Mm -hmm. before, before books, people sat in churches or synagogues or campfires and heard stories. And then suddenly they were holding these books to their noses. People thought that was going to be terrible. Socrates thought writing was going to ruin all humans when they invented writing of letters instead of just speaking. There's just so many examples of this. One of my favorites is uh, I found articles where physicians warned parents not to let their kids sit by the windows in trains because <laughs> the human brain wasn't capable of watching things go by that fast and that it was going to cause permanent neurological damage. Ooh, my gosh.
0: Alrighty. So. And to say nothing of rock and roll. Oh yeah. Rock and roll, yeah. Wow. This is so great. Like Kristen, for real, has been talking about this nonstop. She's like, you've got to finish. you got to read it. you got to read it. So now I'm totally going to read it. And for our listeners who want to read it too, it's called The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. And Jordan, where can people find you if they want to learn more or, you know, talk to you? Do you have a social media channel of choice? Yes.
2: Well, the easiest way to talk to me is through Twitter and I'm at Jordosh, J-O-R-D-O-S-H. And then you can always contact me through my website, which is www.thenewchildhood.com. Easy. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, now it's time for Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. And Jordan, you're our guest, you get to go first. What do you got?
2: Uh, I have two things in mind. One, I just started reading this book that came out at the beginning of March called Daisy Jones and the Six. A lot of people are talking about this book. It's about like a 1970s rock group. So if you remember like the old time rock and roll with groupies and all that, here's a novel about that. It's just, I can't stop reading it. I both want to read it fast and also make it last as long as possible.
0: When does it take place? I
2: think it's like 73, 74 and it's about this girl Who becomes a woman in the book? Who becomes a front woman for a band? And it's just—it's fantastic. It's written like a behind-the-scenes documentary on television. Like it's almost written, almost like dialogue.
0: Ooh, I would love that. It's like almost famous. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's really great. And then the second thing I'll suggest—that's a little more parent-oriented, although I think only the grown-ups will like this and not the kids— which is there's a new Lego set of the Flintstones. Ah, I've
0: seen. Yes. I yes. saw it. I did know this, but are you like a big Flintstones fan?
2: No, I'm. A, I'm just a big Lego fan, and and the fact that there's suddenly a Flintstones kit makes me really uh, interested. The problem is, I won't build it, and I'm not sure I can get my kids interested because <laughs> I don't think they know what the Flintstones are. <laughs> it's <So. laughs>
0: true. I'm holding up for the Jetsons set. Hopefully that'll oh, that one day! How very high tech of you, Liz! How very high tech.
1: <laughs> All right, awesome. All right, well, I'm going to keep my eye out for that, Liz. What do you have?
0: Well, you know, I was thinking it's been a while since I kind of did like a fashion jewelry pick and I wanted to All give right. a shout out to an amazing store I discovered when I was in Austin a couple weeks ago. It's called Limbo. It's on South Congress. They actually have two stores. They have a Limbo, I want to say it's called Limbo Junior which is an amazing kids store. And I loved it so much. They were like, oh, you've got to go to our main store, Limbo, down the street. And I went
2: Krista. Oh, oh
0: I like want to go back <laughs> with you just to take you there. It's LimboJewelryStore.com. <laughs> okay. They're just Limbo Jewelry on Instagram. And It's entirely local Austin artists, which I love because, you know, I love supporting local artists and finding one of a kind pieces. And I bought these instead of hoops. They're like hoops, but they're triangles. They're like long dangling triangles. I have been wearing them nonstop and that's where I got them. All right. And I'm I'm seeing that the gold is not on the website. So maybe I got the last one, but you can get them in silver. Anyway, it's Limbo Jewelry Store. Dot com. It's in Austin. It's super cool. And if you can't get to Austin, check out the website and you can support an indie artist. And the stuff is pretty affordable. I love it. And of course, I forgot
1: to say that we will link up all of these things, Jordan's book, your jewelry, all of the good stuff over on our Cool Mom Picks podcast page. Okay, so <laughs> I picked this and then forgot I was on a podcast, apparently, because my pick is pea milk. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, this would be better on a video than on a podcast. But I don't know if you knew this, but you know how they have milk out of everything. This is
0: P.E.A., right? Yes, it's P.E.A. milk. But like
1: there's like oat milk now and all those kinds of milks. But now the milks, they're making it out of peas. Oh, I know. Is it green? It is not green, which is kind of disappointing, right? Like my kids would at least drink it if it was like a weird color. It is not green, but it is very high in protein. It has like eight grams of protein. This does
0: not sound appealing to me, I must It is say. so
1: delicious. Oh, wait, but here's really? the thing. For those of us who do not drink cow's milk, yes. it is hard to find a milk that is not soy that is high mm-hmm. in protein. They like really yeah. don't exist. Yeah,
0: oat milk. I mean, people love that, but there's like no protein.
1: Yeah, it's not. Almond milk, no. So it has eight grams of protein per serving, which is, you know, whatever the brand that I'm using is called Ripple. Um, and it also has a ton of calcium, which is another issue for some of those non dairy milk. So anyway, I really like it. Um, My kids all turned their nose down on it. So what I did is I dumped it into our almond milk container. And um, yeah, they've been drinking it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's like the best parenting hack ever. Switch the containers; they'll never know. Right,
1: because I've spent so much money on the the pea milk that I'm like, you're gonna be drinking it. So <laughs> so far, no one has figured it out, but of course, we will find out because my son loves podcasts and I believe my podcast is on his rotation so
0: sorry son surprise sorry, <laughs> that's like a double cool pick because you recommend the P- P-E-A P-Milk but also a cool trick for tricking your kids into eating it <laughs> yes there you go I'm just, it's just a two for kind of night alright well thanks
1: so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned huge thanks to our engineer John Bowen and hey listeners we love hearing from you pretty please Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe. You can do that right now while you're listening and be sure to download our episodes and Hey, Liz, I saw
0: that you posted over in our Spawned podcast community on Facebook. Because you know why? Our Spawned podcast community members on Facebook get a first look at all of our new episodes and they get to talk about it before anybody else. That's true. Plus, they're leaving us really cool ideas for topics that they want covered. So if you have things that you're like, you don't talk about this enough, then you know what? Let us know. We love hearing from you. Just go on Facebook, you know where Facebook is, and look up Spawned podcast community or just Spawn. And you will find it. We would love to have you join us to chat about everything we talk about here, and you know what? Anything else
1: you want to chat about? So come on over. Yeah,
0: Kristen's like asking for hair tips, like, <laughs> it's date a fun night chatty, tips, like little break from the craziness of the day. So come over and hang out with us for a little bit. It's fun over
1: there. Yes, and be sure to follow us. We're on Twitter, Instagram. Facebook, obviously. And you can drop us an email, spawned at coolmompics.com. And don't forget, everything we talk about on our show is over on coolmompics.com. Thanks for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. And this is Liz. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.